Welcome to After Hours with me, Rick Kogan. This is something I wrote about Dave Hoekstra's new book. Over the years, Dave Hoekstra has given me, in his writing and his tireless search for good stories and captivating people, moments of insight and laughter, tears and revelations. All of that is between the pages of this book, and there is, in a wondrous way, hope for us all. The book is Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspaper. He is sitting here. Paul Natkin, the great photographer whose new book is also sitting here. It is bigger than Dave's book and has a lot more pictures than Dave's book. It's called The Moment of Truth. And since these gentlemen, who I admire tremendously, are going to be on for an hour and a half, uh, we will start with Paul Natkin telling a story about being in a car with Dave Hoekstra. <laughs> I wanted to tell this story since the first time you called and told me to come on the show. Okay, good. Uh, well, your, your dream has come true. So we were... We were working on a book on soul food and the civil rights yeah, movement. It's a great book. We're driving around the South. It was the middle of winter. We were driving home from Memphis, and we kept ourselves occupied by telling Chicago Bulls trivia questions to each other. <laughs> and and Dave decided he needed to know where Greg Popovich was born. And I, I was driving. Yeah, and he was driving. <laughs> he was driving. Middle of the night, ice on the road, 60 miles an hour. So he picks up his phone and starts Googling. Well, I knew Greg he was Popovich. from the Maryville area. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were heading toward Maryville, sort yeah. of. And uh, I grabbed the phone out of his hand and I said, pull over the side of the road and let me off here. I'm going to walk the rest of the way. <laughs> and we were in the middle of freaking nowhere Farmland. in central Tennessee. And he got the point. He didn't Google anymore while we were driving. Until you get, fell asleep. He gets you home safely. <laughs> yeah, we got home. home. We always got home safely. He drove all the time, and he'd never gotten an accident. David, you did a lot of traveling for Beacons in the Darkness. It's sort of an exploration of the small community newspapers, but, but on another deeper level, it's an examination of the meaning, I think, of community. Right, exactly. Um, thanks for having us on. Sure. It's great to see all you guys. You guys can become a team now, a radio team. <laughs> we're, we're a comedy team. <laughs> well, we have, you know, Paul's taking pictures for a couple of my books, and um, the thesis is, like, what we did with supper clubs and even what we did with soul food and civil rights is to use community and sense of place as a, as a, as a jumping-off point for what you're writing. And, and I, especially in the supper club book, I learned about how important multi generational stuff was in the supper sure, clubs. You know, sure. third and fourth families and family generations, and how hard it is for the third generation to to stay in the business and stuff. So that's I, so true. In yeah. This book so I started too. thinking, what would happen if I applied that to small town newspapers? So you know, it's like twenty newspapers in the book, but not all of them are small town. We go mid mid level, Charleston and Arkansas, well, and that. also also Chicago. Yeah, we got Tracy, Tracy Bain in there from the Reader, just because she's got an interesting, very compelling family background. Oh, yeah. Totally, totally. Um, but it's family. It's independent. Um, it's it's not corporate. Um, and it's you know, it was we how it started in two thousand nineteen. How did you select the papers though? I mean, there's a, one of the things about Beacons in the Darkness is there is a ton of research here. I, yeah. I was actually kind of flabbergasted. Yeah. I have no nothing else to do. <laughs> I just sit in my house. I was just <laughs> going to say that, but he beat me to it. No, the pandemic probably maybe the pandemic kind of maybe yeah. in the, yeah. enabled me to do that. But I started with Hillsboro, um, Hillsboro, Illinois. It's a um, fifth generation. It's about an hour south of 
Springfield and you know 75 miles north of St. Louis. Five generation paper. They're really really involved in the community. It's off the beaten path. I mean, I know in Litchfield is like down there. It's right off of Route 66 and I 55. But um, Hillsboro is even farther farther east and stuff. And they just have really really put their heart and soul into the paper. I, one time I was thinking, well, I could do a Friday Night Lights thing and talk about how they get involved with the community the football team the, the, the police station and all that stuff but it started with them it really started with them and um it's interesting since i started the book uh they were picked by the smithsonian uh to do it they're part of an innovation series that, uh the smithsonian's doing in 2023 on rural communities and hillsborough was picked for that so wow. they i'm sure in some ways shapes and form they saw the same thing I saw. I mean, Hillsboro, to give you some context, maybe 6,000 people, and they've got a couple of brew pubs downtown, and they've got a record store. They had a recording studio, and it's out in the middle of nowhere. So anyway, it's just how the newspaper embraced all that and championed that. and So they, yeah, they, kinda, they were kind of the, the North Star for the book. Dave Hoekser, if you don't know, uh, was among the great bylines in the history of this town, uh, mostly for the Sun-Times started suburban papers. Paul Natkin is arguably the greatest rock and roll music photographer that certainly that this town has ever known, and perhaps the world. What do you say to that, Paul? Not the world. But maybe in Chicago, but there's n- not a lot of competition here. You both, you both came to this business young. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, I want to sort of get into because you're here for an hour and a half. We've got time to fill, jokes to tell, uh, sad stories to hear. Uh, <laughs> so think about how you want to describe your own life after this welcome back this is kind of a package deal because dave hoekster has written his latest book beacons in the darkness is a fabulous look at uh, at small town newspapers and small towns in general and the meaning of those newspapers to the towns in which they're public and to life in general he has also written the introduction to paul natkins uh, the moment of truth which is a handsomely produced a book of Paul how many pictures are in here do you know many a lot I don't know I gave I lost track after a while it is sort of you grew up as a son of a photographer who who took you early on to Chicago Stadium in the glory days of the Chicago Stadium maybe not the glory days of the Bulls and you grabbed a camera and took a picture of Lou Alcindor and that that basically started your career yeah. well can I can I just say one thing you first can say anything. I think it's, it's your show. I think it's really important to say here is that I'm sitting here in a room with the two greatest newspaper writers that I've ever known <laughs> and it's like who would that be I, the only okay. other two guys in the room oh, thank well you. thank you uh, yeah I uh my father was a photographer before I was born and uh he was a freelance photojournalist he's one of the guys that helped start helped found ebony magazine Mm. after world war ii and uh then he quit when i was born and all while i was growing up he was just a builder who had a dark room in the basement that he never used and uh then he went bankrupt in the in the early 70s and uh he had nothing to do my mother got a job he was at home washing dishes and making dinner and he called a bunch of friends of his, and one of them was a guy who was the publicist for the Chicago Bulls, 
a guy that you guys both probably know. His name was Ben Bentley. Ben Bentley. Benny. Yeah, sure. And he said, hey, Ben, can you – do you have any work? And Ben said, well, I'll give you a pass. You could come to the games, and if we if you get any good pictures, we'll buy them from you. Oh. So he went to a game. He came home that night. I was a bum. I, had, I was living on the – Living in my parents' house, have no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And, Were you uh, flirting with college at this time? I had already dropped out of college. Okay. I spent two years at UIC until I wasn't eligible for the draft anymore, and then I quit. Yeah. And I was just like, Aimless. you know, I was, I was uh, mooching off my parents. Yeah. My father came home and he told me this story that involved four very important points that have defined my life from that point on. Number one, free parking. <laughs> number two food get into the game for free that's good number three free meal in the press box and number four best seats in the house and that's how i decided to become a photographer wow. and he brought me to the next game he went to i never held the camera in my hand in my life and he after he parked the car he handed me the camera and said, okay, this is the button you push. This is the button you use to advance the film. Look in here. Look in here. Focus with this thing. And we walked out on the court, and I'm standing right next to Lou Cinder, who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Sure. And uh, that was the fateful moment. Is it a good picture you took of him? Do you have any I've got memory some of, of the greatest pictures I ever took were of Lou Cinder. Wow. And Will Chamberlain. And... Uh, guys like Bernard King and Bill Walton, all those people from those days, Pete Maravich. Mm. And then you moved. You were up at Northwestern. Your memory serves. Yeah. So I was up at Northwestern. I started shooting tennis after that. That's right. That's and I was shooting right. a tennis right. tournament up at Northwestern. And uh, it was over like around dusk because there were no lights on the court. Yeah. And I went back to my car to go home, started up the engine, and there was an ad on the radio. It said that there's this woman that I kind of heard of by the name of Bonnie Raitt that was playing, and I couldn't make this up. I mean, there's no way that I could ever make this up. I was parked four feet away from the building she was playing in, in an hour. And I thought, okay, I've been able to BS my way in almost any sporting event in Chicago. Let's see if I could do it here. And I shut off the engine, got out my stuff. I walked to the backstage door. And uh, said, I'm Paul Natkin. Well, no, I, I had this whole lie made up that I was working for this new magazine called Rolling Stone Magazine. And uh, my name was supposed to be on the list, which, of course, it wasn't. Yeah, right. Before I could say a word, the guy at the door looked at my camera equipment and said, oh, you're with the press. Go in and do whatever you want. Just don't get on stage. Huh. And, it, and that began your. And your... that was the first concert I ever shot. It was never that easy again, wow. ever. David, you, you, you fell in love with newspapers early on, didn't you, when you were in high school? Uh, Naperville Central, yeah. yeah. I was editor of school paper. And, yeah, and uh, I think I might say in the forward of the book, um, um, my dad you know, worked downtown and bring home. Back in those days, it was, I'm sure, you know, if not you, your dad. I mean, it's four newspapers. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, man, they were always around the house, you know, and uh, it was just it was part of my DNA, you know. I was just... From, from the time I was a kid, between the school newspaper and all those around the house, I loved it. You know, you wrote here, my newspaper career started in 1972 at the mid-sized Aurora Beacon News. Yeah. I was a junior in high school. 
I bobbed and weaved through suburban Chicago journalism before landing at the Chicago Sun-Times in February 1985. That's when you were on the way out. I was. You, you moved. You know, Murdoch. <laughs> yeah, right. Murdoch had bought the yeah. paper in 84, yeah. and I just yeah. I freelanced for a few years before yeah. going to the Tribune. <laughs> uh, those were heady, wonderful times, weren't they? Um, yeah, they were. I yeah. mean, um, and we could go off on a whole thing on this. Sure. You know, um, it got bad. I mean, I, I've, I've been thinking. I've been going through a lot of archives and stuff while doing this book and stuff. Paul wouldn't know. I mean, I remember Wingo. I sent somebody a picture oh of Sammy God. Davis Jr. with the Wingo card, you know. And so Murdoch did stuff like that. But you know what? Um, it never got as bad. I don't think oh, it got as bad as the New York Post. Never. I always tell people the story when the Bears were in the Super Bowl in '85. Man, we had they, Murdoch sent like 25. I was the person. They sent me down there. To do color for a week, you know, and I, one of my one night my my gig was to just follow around Jim McMahon, you know. Another oh, I found a, a, I found a witch doctor in the French Quarter. So anyway, <laughs> so, so I mean they really had deep pockets. Yeah, and nothing yeah, like that'll yeah. ever ever happen again. Well, I mean in your book, I mean that's one of the huge huge problems with newspapers in this country is is there's no money. Yeah, right. There's just no money anymore. And one of the things for Paul that changed your life is there's no access anymore well there's also no money but but definitely the access is the important thing or why the lack there, of access why is there no money do they get you know they, they hire other photographers they everybody everybody has 10 friends that have iphones wow and they wow. sit stand in the photo pit and shoot with their iphones and give them pictures for free mm. and every photographer that i know of in the city of chicago or almost everyone uh will tell you honestly that they don't earn a living doing this and they have a day job, and you know they they make a dollar forty three a picture. Oh, that, uh, I have a friend that works for Associated Press. It doesn't work for them, but he's a stringer for them, and he averages about a under a dollar fifty a picture. That's obscene. Yeah, that's and that's obscene. I I'm with the biggest photo agency in the world, and I average which is what Getty Images, yeah. and uh, more than half the images that they license of mine. My share of the sale is under two dollars. Wow! And out of those, wow. th- that half that's under two dollars, more than half of those, it's under twenty-five cents. That's crazy to me. But that is just crazy to there's me. There's an old joke that I heard about the guy's walking on the street and he sees a shopkeeper in front of his store and he says, "How's business?" And the guy says, uh, "Well, I lose a penny on every transaction, but I make it up on the volume." <laughs> and I. Wow. I license three to four hundred pictures every month through Getty, yeah. and make a pretty good amount of money. But it's if they were paying what they used to pay, I would be, I'd be driving a Ferrari. But I must hazard to say that neither of you, neither of you, got in this business for the money. Well, let me say something. You know, it covers all three of us. But um, there's a, John Gaylor, who, um, I, yeah. like I said, began the book with in Hillsboro. I yep. always, I, in my elevator pitch, I mean, I always tell people one thing he told me at the very beginning of this. I did like a pre-interview with these guys, and I went down the Hillsboro and tried to earn their trust. But he goes, at the end of the day, at the end of the day. If we've made a dollar this year, we've had a good year. Mm. And you're not going to see that in, in urban markets. You know, you're going to have stockholders and corporate stuff. And sure. So why do we all do it? You know, we do it. You know, we're all older. We do it for the love of the game. I don't know. You know, I mean, but well, that's, that's why I do it. You know, that's what I found in in your book. Certainly, is the there is a genuine passion that these people they they feel 
almost to a person that they are on a mission Mm -hmm. here to provide something for the communities in which they live. And yeah, and I think that's true of all of us. But yeah, you have to. And again, this goes back to all the projects we've done. And I think there's also a pride. Go ahead. A pride in in, uh, ownership or a pride in workmanship. Yes. That. You know, they want to put out the best newspaper available. I want to take the best pictures that I could take. You guys want to write the best writing you could take. And whether we get paid for it or not is a whole different story. Yeah, no kidding. But the thing I keep pounding the the drum on is community. I mean, everything is so fragmented now. Now is the time to try to understand what makes different communities work and what are the the gears in those. You know, David has written the introduction to Paul's book, too. And in that... He mentions also community. He writes at the end of the introduction, the moment of truth is a celebration of all those moments that create the community of music. Here comes some news, and we'll be back to follow that. We'll tell some more stories about Dave's driving, uh, (laughs) and we'll carry on. So stay tuned. The one thing that uh, characterizes both of these books, Paul Natkin's The Moment of Truth and Dave Hoekstra's Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers, is there is a real, very different, but there is a real intimacy to both books. Dave sits down with all of these people and gets from them remarkably candid interviews about the difficulties of running a community newspaper in this crazy crazy age there's one guy in here dave that really intrigues me he's the newspaper broker who sells newspapers what's he like he's left the business since the book came out Uh, but he was he he was uh in it forever well he was good because he called things down the middle he had he had no skin in the game so he would he would help me with research and he'd tell me you know i'm still you know people I, i have a chapter in there on nonprofits and you know, I was looking for neutral voices on nonprofits. Sure. I, I still don't know how I quite feel on them. I have a couple opinions on them, but the nonprofit chapter runs about fifty-fifty on the nonprofit model. But he was a good resource for that. People have asked me like, "What's happened since I handed the book in?" And there was one paper in Madison, Indiana. He helped me research that. It was like the second or third longest-running family newspaper in America, Ugh. and they sold right in the middle of doing the book. Um, they had some health issues. The guy, Kurt Jacobs. But so he was he was good with research and he was good with honest honest comments and stuff. I didn't want to you know um, it's it, we talk we've talked about studs before and I think all the books I try to do or I try to honor and celebrate the voices and not get in the way of the voices. Kind of what studs did, yeah. You know, of the so called of the so called ordinary people, yeah, 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 who are not ordinary at yeah, all, yeah, right. So um, I, that's I tried to lean into that. You know, there's some I didn't want to make. It's not a big manifesto on the future. I mean, I, I do. There's a there's a tone of hope in the book, but yes, it's really is. a celebration of of the people. I think as Paul, you guys said, it, the people who are in the trenches with all this extreme passion. You know. Paul, when you look at the photos in this book, I mean, they're incredibly evocative. Uh, certainly to me, there's one in here. What what I think are the best photos in this book. I've been to some of these concerts, hardly all of them. I was the worst rock critic in the history of American <laughs> newspapers. They made me the rock critic when uh, a guy named Elliot Wall oh. went to uh, Ravinia to review Todd Rundgren. And he came back, and he was sitting at a desk. I, I was reviewing something else. It was overnight, and he he couldn't. He wasn't typing. I go, "What's the matter? What are you doing?" 
He goes, I, I have nothing to say. I go, yeah, me too, but we have uh, words to fill the paper. <laughs> this has happened a million times to all critics. we got nothing to say, but write it. No, I think I'm done. I'm like, wow. What? <laughs> what do you mean done? Well, I think I, I have nothing to say, and I think it's a disservice. This was amazing. A disservice to readers to just uh, BS them uh, for 600 words. Oh, that's and that was the last one. So they came to me and said, how old are you? I said, right, I'm 27, Mr. Hogue. <laughs> and he said, well, you can, you're can. you going to be the new rock critic. I go, well, I, I haven't bought our album since the Beatles broke up. And they said, well, you'll be fine. I was horrible. I didn't know what songs people were playing, but I, I did go until... Uh, Wait, let me say something. Well, it was Don McLeese came to take over. You know, same thing. I, when I did, and Paul can talk about this too. I mean, when I did rock criticism, um, I think maybe I'm guessing maybe it was the same thing with you. As I, was, I always always go at it with a repertorial point of view, and I would do a, I would talk about history. Okay, Eric Clapton, but where did Eric Clapton come? From? It wasn't so much my opinion. I don't know how you approached oh, it. Oh, no, I did it as a reporter. You, I, the crowd yeah, right. was dressed like this. Yeah, that's what I did, too. Yeah. I don't know what your feeling is toward rock criticism, but, yeah, I always was like, repetitive. Did you, Paul, you, you've been to more concerts than anybody, anybody <laughs> I know. Did you read reviews of those concerts? I know you've known a lot of people in the business, critics uh, yeah. as well. Did you read reviews of the shows that you saw? Because seeing it as a photographer has got to be a little different than seeing it as a critic. Well, I... I Don McLeese was my next door neighbor for many years. So you had to read him. So, you know, I'd see him when I was throwing out the garbage in the morning and he'd be out there doing the same thing. So I always read his stuff. I always read Dave's stuff. Uh, the The day I met uh, Jim DeRogatis, yeah. I was out uh, photographing a Bruce Springsteen concert out in Hoffman Estates. And at intermission... Greg Cott was sitting next to us, next to me, and he said, "Hey, have you met the new guy at the Sun Times?" And I, uh, I said, "No, I haven't." And he said, "Well, he's sitting at the end of the aisle. Let's go and meet him." So we walked over to the aisle, and Jim was sitting there with his wife. And I, w- I walked up to him, and I'm a big Springsteen fan. And I said, "Oh, so what'd you think? Wasn't it great?" And he looks at me, and the first words he ever said to me was, "Oh, so you're buying into this too?" <laughs> And and I heard later from a mutual friend of I'm I'm not sure if I won't mention names yeah. but uh, one of the features editors of Sometimes that Jim came to work in Chicago two weeks early from when he was supposed to start as a Sometimes critic just so he could come to Chicago early and rip Bruce Springsteen and he got up in the middle of the features department and said I'll see you guys tomorrow I'm going out to Hoffman Estates to rip Springsteen wow and he wow. had. Wow. He had facts. He had songs, titles wrong. He had, I mean, it, it was a terrible piece of writing. I guess you won't be on Sound Opinions for this. Book. I don't think. I don't think <laughs> yeah. I'll ever be on Sound Opinions. <laughs> and and I I used to read his stuff all the time because he was so full of BS <laughs> that I I wanted to be able to call him on it when I saw him. Like it, when he was w- working for the Reader, he wrote a, an article once about how. Uh, he used to write that front page at Section 3. Right. He wrote an article about how there's never been any good music that has ever come out of the state of Texas. And <laughs> broad state. I saw him a couple of days later and I said, did you ever hear Willie Nelson? You know, I mean, and I started listing bands. So I stand by it. And then the following week, he wrote an article about this woman from Texas that was really great that had a new album out. 
Strange. I think Jim would say he was he was a provocateur, though. He came from the Lester Bang school. Right, he right. Was, yeah, I mean, yeah, that was yeah. nothing. I was not like that, and I don't think you would have. No, been no. But Jim, Jim was really. Uh, but was, I always, I always thought that you had to, if you were a critic, yeah. you had to uh, go out there with an open mind. Right. And one of the things that was great about McLeese in those days is that he told me many times that even if he hated the band. He could always find something good to write about him. But that's, and that's kind of the Dick Christensen, the famous yeah. theater critic, the Dick Christensen school of of criticism that even even in a miserable play, you might be able to find one actor that shows. Well, McLeese told promise. me told me many times that there are only two bands in the world that are so bad that every critic has the right to say bad things about him at any time, and that's The Grateful Dead and Rush. And even that, if he would review a Rush concert, he'd write about how good the lights were. And I thought about this a lot. It takes the worst, I've I've read this, this is a paraphrase of quote, but the worst art, somebody who gets has the balls to get up on stage and put themselves out there, that's better than the best criticism. I've, I've read that. It's really, you know, you know. I think about that now. I'm 67 years old. When I really want to be sitting in a um, uh, hall reviewing shows and stuff, I just have respect for artists who take chances. You know, well, and, it's like it's, it's respect for anybody. I, I tend to have respect for anybody who writes a book. Yeah, right. Even if it's terrible, because I know, and we all know what goes in. How much writing. work goes into yeah. it? Exactly. And I'm sure that Paul, you as a photographer. We'll give a break to someone who doesn't take a picture that is aesthetically, who doesn't take a photo like this. And I'm looking at at uh, page 218 of uh, Paul's book. This this portrait of Johnny Cash is among the greatest portraits. That, of that I anybody. took that picture because because I know Dave Hoekstra. Oh, tell me. <laughs> so Dave and I had this whacked out idea. Back in the 80s, when Garth Brooks came along and you know country music got yeah. really big, that we were going to start going down to Nashville and, and meeting country music people, and we were going to try to promote ourselves to the country music magazines. I forgot about this. And, uh, wow. There's this magazine called New Country Music, and they wanted me to take a picture of Johnny Cash for the cover. And uh, I had no idea how to get a hold of anybody connected with Johnny Cash, so I called Dave, and of course he knew. So we we went down to Merrillville to the Star Plaza Theater, and I brought a black background because I figured, you know, man in black. And uh, I was scared senseless. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm waiting for him to walk into the room, and I'm thinking, you know, this this legend is going to walk in the room. He's going to hate me, He's, you know. And he came in, and... I've never met a nicer human being. And wow. If I shot for 3 hours, he would have just sat there and done whatever I asked him to do. And I just every picture I took was like magic. Well, this one is an astonishing magic. Can people buy let's say I'm a consumer and I pick up your book, The Moment of Truth. And I look in there, and I'm a big fan of Johnny Cash, and I say, God, I would love to have this on my wall. Can people buy the photos that are in this book? There's a way to buy them. Uh, From if you? you? Go to, well, if you go to trope.com, they have a system in place where you could buy any of the pictures from the book. And do you make money if they buy the pictures uh, from the yes. book? Yes. Okay. 
That's all I care about. There's another. <laughs> there's another spectacular. I mean, all of these shots in the book are are amazing, and Dave would agree. There's another shot of Mavis Staples in here. Well, that's another one that you that know partnership explain, partnership with Mr. Hoekstra here certainly explain uh, why Bob Dylan wanted to marry her well, when they were both young. So Bruce Siglauer from Alligator Records yeah, well, sure. brought her over to my house, <laughs> and he called me on the way over, and he said, "I want to get a picture of her singing gospel." So they walked in my house, and she and her sister came in. And Yvonne sat on the couch and told stories about Bob Dylan while Mavis sang gospel songs to me for three hours in my living room. And that was an album that I shot the cover, Dave Dave did the liner notes for. Wow. Uh, That shows you the joy and and, uh, incredible moments. The only person I ever had my picture taken with was Mavis that day. Who could blame you? I had Bruce. I had the camera on a tripod. I told Bruce what button to push, and I walked over, put my arm around her shoulders, and and he took a picture. I love that story. We'll take a break and come back and continue on with these two amazing guys. Welcome back. Uh, These two gentlemen, uh, author, photographer, Dave Hoekstra and Paul Natkin. Dave's latest book is Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers. He has also written the lovely introduction, because nobody knows Paul Natkin better than Dave Hoekstra, to Paul Natkin's latest book, The Moment of Truth. Paul had a show at uh, the Logan Center in Hyde Park on the University of Chicago campus featuring all of his blues photographs in here what strikes me paul is your your affection for the colorful nature of metal (laughs) there's nothing better than going to shoot a a, a hair metal band because of the colorful nature of everything about them they they make up for a massive lack of talent (laughs) by having a great putting on a great show and using a lot of hairspray and a lot of really colorful lights the other thing that impressed me about this book, and, and there is, in addition to David's writing uh, in the introduction and uh, other pieces of text throughout, is you like most of these people, didn't you? You you formed a relationship with most of these people from, you know, Springsteen on down. He's laughing. Well, I'm thinking of John uh, Mellencamp. Well, there, there are <laughs> two, you two people in the book that I don't get along with. Who? One of them's Mellencamp. Okay. Why? And one, uh, you know, it's like, not a story for the radio. Okay. Um, but the story of the picture is good. The story of the picture, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I shot that right in front of Tribune Tower. <laughs> and he was staying at the, uh, what's that hotel next door? Intercontinental. The, the Intercontinental. And uh, we went out on the street, and he was very grumpy that day, and he said, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of time. Work fast. And he dove headfirst into a garbage can. And I took two pictures, and he got up and dusted himself off and walked away. Wow, it sounds charming. And the other one was the other one's Billy Corgan, who I've never gotten along with. You don't, but, go, to, you don't go to his tea shop in No, I don't. Island. Never been to his tea shop. There's another amazing shot in here. I was at, I was, I've been at some of these shows, some of these very shows, but I certainly was at this show, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. in 1989 at the Chicago Theater. That's the last time those three guys were ever together. Well, they f- they fired Dean that night when they got back to the hotel. Yeah, and, that was and they had a show the next night, and they had to replace him with somebody. So Liza they, Minnelli came. They yeah. sent Liza they, Minnelli went on the Frank road. Frank sent his private jet yeah. out to pick up Liza Minnelli and bring her back here. 
It really was. That was the last, I remember reviewing that show. It was like, to me, it was the last gasp of that old-fashioned thing called showbiz. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised people weren't smoking in the theater. Maybe they were. They probably were. I don't want to waste your time with a tangent story, but we got, remember Bill Linden, a great artist? Oh, Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. and we had a little Sammy party, and we've got a uh, Sammy impersonator. I think I'd found him in one of when I was doing Nocturnal (laughs) Journal or one of those columns for the Sunset, and he looked just like Sammy, so we brought him to meet those guys and uh, they go wow he looks just like sammy davis jr and he and one night he came on stage and anybody, yeah we brought a uh, sammy davis jr. Uh, i don't know sinatra song but the uh, dean song it's incredible when <laughs> newspaper that ladies and gentlemen were just talking about when newspapering was fun right. was fun these two guys have uh, some events coming up and we'll tell you about that after the news at the top of the hour Paul, is there there is, is there going to be a show of of any of these photographs? Because that blue show at the Logan Center was fantastic. Yeah, that, there's going to be some stuff coming up. I've been doing a lot of press. I've been doing a lot of uh, interviews and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we'll see what happens. What, what is doing that and sitting here talking to me and Dave? What does that What does that tell you about yourself? Anything? Or is it a pain? It in tells the me ass? that I'm full of crap, yeah. and people want to hear it. <laughs> I I have I had never had any idea when I was growing up and working in this business that I'd ever be at the point where people would call me legendary. Yeah. And you know, I thought that was for dead people. Well, and dead dead and old people. Old I and mean, dead. I, I yeah. will tell you now that yeah. that's actually the case. So, you know, I'm just a uh, I'm just a schmuck with a camera. That's the way I describe myself. Do you miss the concerts? Oh, I'm going. I'm going to a concert tonight. Right after we leave here, what a, a band that I care very little about. I, they're a great band. They're yeah. called Reverend Horton Heat, and they're playing at the Metro. T- they're playing at the Metro in two hours, and uh, I arranged for a photo pass, and I'm going just because I'm so bored with my life. You I'm, shooting? Yeah, I, I would never go to a concert just to go to a concert. Ever. Have you ever gone to a concert just to sit and listen? I used to I used to work with Springsteen a lot, and he would always play two nights in Chicago, yeah, at least. And I would always get tickets for the first night, and I'd watch the show and I'd take notes. Oh, sure. And then I'd go and shoot the next night. Sure. And that's when I met DeRogatis in the in the aisle at out in Hoffman Estates when I was sitting and watching the show. Wow. Well, the other thing about the newspapers these days is the newspapers do not review much music. I know. Uh, and that's got a. Uh, it's just a strange time because we used to, and I'm speaking of newspapers in general, review almost everything. Or sometimes if you do something like that, it's in two days later. I remember I used to date a woman from Second City, and we'd come down the Sun Times like at three in the morning to see what the critics said. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, it was that immediate. You know, yeah. and it's not like, a different time. Yeah. Or you have to have your phone and you yeah. have to go on your. Yeah phone to figure out stuff we will come back with these guys i'm very grateful to both of you for spending this amount of time david's book again is beacons in the darkness hope and transformation among america's community newspapers the three words i would pick out of that subhead are hope transformation and community paul natkin's book for which david has also written the uh introduction is the moment of truth it's got uh, Tina Turner and uh, and some guy named Mick on the cover, and it is just filled with evocative shots. If you ever went to concerts in Chicago, this book will bring back memories, both really good, <laughs> I suppose, for some of you, 
really bad. We'll be back and uh, continue on with these guys after the news. I'm going to read you two things from uh, the two books by my guests, Moment of Truth by Paul Natkin. Near the end, uh, some fellow I don't know named Steve Gorman of the Black Crows, another band I don't know, uh, (laughs) writes, when you're talking about Paul and you're talking about photo shoots and he's showing you some old stuff, and then you see a photo of Sinatra in between images of Guns N' Roses and Slaughter, you're like, who is this guy? We recognize he's not entering our world, we're entering his And that's just the thing. As time went on and we understood what Paul had already done and how great he is at what he does, it was always a pleasure to know he was still hanging around. That's awfully nice. That rivals what Dave Hoekstra wrote about you in the introduction. Yeah, it was uh, pretty shocking. Uh, You know, if I were you, I would read that every morning when I woke up. (laughs) I I still go and see the Black Crows every time they come to town. I'm not surprised. I and uh, they, they, I don't even call them and say, can I come to shoot your show? They call me in the morning like, hey, what time are you getting here today? Wow. You should after that uh, yeah. couple sentences. You should help them with their equipment. Except that guy's not in the band anymore and the rest of the band hates him. <laughs> so and I don't. They, they still, who cares? They still love you. Yeah. Uh, Dave Hoekstra writes near the end of his uh Really remarkable book, Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers, which is about the weird state that newspapers are in, not just community. He he touches on uh, seriously in Chicago, his time here and uh, the time with the Sun-Times and what's going on with the Sun-Times. He writes this near the end of his book, as I became a seasoned and hopefully not too cynical journalist, I use Randall McMurphy from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as a metaphor with younger, frustrated writers. There's a scene in the film where McMurphy, Jack Nicholson, attempts to lift a water cooler. He cannot do it. His fellow repressed patients view the struggle in disbelief. He asks, giving up? I'm just warming up. McMurtry ultimately fails, drenched in sweat. He tells the room that at least he tried. The future is bright when you take risks with a sense of adventure and awareness. The next generation of journalists knows this. They are just warming up. Uh, that's a hopeful sentence, Dave. I, I, I hope it's not too over the top, but that's how I did no, think. Not. You know, I mean, uh, I did think like that, and um, we were talking during a break. I mean, that's the thing about these small towns is that there's not a lot of stock. There's no stockholders. Exactly. There's no corporate shades of corporate stuff. So they're free to experiment. They're free to do stuff. There's a guy in Elm, Missouri, in the book. He actually. <laughs> Trevor Vernon, he actually, when I interviewed him, he was a publisher. Now he's publisher and mayor of the town. Well, that works. <laughs> it's like, That's better, yeah. yeah. But, isn't, um, isn't that a conflict of interest? Yeah, right. That's what I said. But, um, you know, he t- he, they, try like, they try like 10 things, and eight of them may fail, but it's the two that work that, 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 that counts, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you and I went through a lot of, like, no's, you know? I don't know. You know, I have a lot of stuff. You can't try this. You can't try this. It got worse at the end of my career, and then you got well, it's gotten worse at the, you know, the yeah. Tribune, yeah. too. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's every paper that is beholden to, you know, you're writing for the number of hits you can get online. I don't even basically barely know what that means. Yeah. Uh, and I struggle on. Paul, you're having an event for your book, are you? Uh, <laughs> yes, Black Crows. I'm not sure if Next it's open. Next time the Black Crows are in town. I'm not sure you. if it's open to the public. Oh, okay. It, it, it is? Sure yeah. yeah. 
November 9th. You go to trope.com, T-R-O-P-E dot com. Where is it? Is it a book signing? It's uh, at their offices, which is uh, are also a gallery. Yeah, it's a nice gallery it's, space. It's right by uh, the United Center. Okay, a couple can, blocks away, and people will be able to buy books. So you yeah. can also do it in all the. Well, I'm not, I was going to say the conventional ways. The conventional ways used to be bookstores, uh, but in any online, uh, there's still a couple of bookstores out there. But, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not diminishing that, but but online is uh, easy for some people. Again, it's uh, the moment of truth. David, you're having a big party next week, correct? Yes, Rick. Um, there's two things going on. Yes. First thing is, uh, well, yeah. we have to take. Well, we'll get to them after this short break, and then you guys. Okay. Then we'll be on for about ten minutes, and then you guys can get out of here. I'm so grateful for being on. You've, you've, you've renewed in many ways, especially. Uh, Beacons in the Darkness has renewed my faith in the printed word, and Paul Natkin's book. The Moment of Truth uh, has renewed my faith in the way that I've lived my life. Oh, wow. Welcome back. I only have a few more minutes with these two uh, incredible talents. They've been my friends for, for decades now, and I have been an admirer for perhaps a little longer, probably since Dave's first violin appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times in 1985 and through a number of books and through a fantastic couple of uh, documentaries. Paul Natkin's pictures have thrilled me no matter where they have appeared. Dave's uh, latest book is Beacons in the Darkness, Hope and Transformation Among America's Community Newspapers. The key words in that uh, subtitle are hope, transformation, and community. Paul Natkin's book is the moment of truth. Dave, you're having, the book is avail, formally available Tuesday, Yes. Tuesday, yes, Agate Press in Evanston, and um, I think City Lit's doing the um, City Lit's doing the book event party. At least we'll have books at the uh, we're having a book launch. Seven o'clock, that? seven o'clock, October night. I had to write this down. Seven o'clock, October nineteenth. Yes, wait a minute. For all for all the time we've been in the business, you guys, you are now, ladies and gentlemen, listening to probably the three worst self promoters in the history of the promotion business. But it's free. It's seven o'clock, October nineteenth, at Ouija's Lounge, named after the photographer, yes, the photographer. New York, yeah, Coney Island crime pictures, thirty six fifty nine North. West Armitage, see? West Armitage. 3659, just like when I had a radio show. 3659 West Armitage in Chicago. But enough about that. The night before, which would be on the 18th of October, same time, 7 o'clock p.m., Rick Kogan is getting the Fuller Award Ceremony for Lifetime Achievement by the Literary Hall of Fame at the Chopin Theater, 1543 West Division Street, you know, you've been so nice to us, but I think Paul and I would agree there's no other writer right now in Chicago that deserves this honor. Well, That's, but I think it, it means, I think it means, as Paul was saying much earlier in this show, that I, I, you, you get these awards when you're dead. So I'm pretty sure that Don Evans plans for me to be shot and killed on the stage of the Chopin Theater. But it's going to be a great night. Um, people what, can go to the Literary Hall of Fame and get tickets, the website. I, <laughs> we were just talking about once that. Again, <laughs> once again, that self-promotional gene I don't have. But our friend Tony Fitzpatrick is going to be talking. Chris Jones is going to be doing something, right? From Chris the Jones is going to interview me, and it, which will be very good because Chris some time ago wrote my obituary when I, was, uh, when I had COVID, uh, jumping the gun a little there. So this will be his chance to really, uh, you know, we do a lot of 
of pre used to in the business do pre obituaries. You know, someone was old. He stunned his like seventy three. You know him, write write his obituary, and you won't be dead for twenty three years. But uh, write it anyway. So this would be like Chris's research for that. Did you ever think about writing your own? I knew writers who did that. They would write their own obit. I can't. You can't. <laughs> I I just can't. It would be well. Maybe I can. I can. I may just take what that guy from the Black Crow said about Paul. I'll take a lot of stuff that people have said about other people and put it into mine. Uh, Let me ask you one thing yes, before we get off of the course. subject of you. Who's um, interviewing who here? Yeah, right. Well, Doesn't I got, matter. we got to do this. It's free um, form. This is after hours. <laughs> when was your first byline? Uh, I think it was 16. Well, I had a couple bylines in a thing called the North Loop News when okay. I was 12, reporting on, uh, on goings-on in the youth of Old Town uh, before we went all went crazy. I was probably 12. My first real byline, I was driving my father and Jim Hogue, the former editor of the Sun-Times, to play tennis, as they often did, under the l tracks on Fullerton. There used to be these amazing tennis courts. I think there's, there's DePaul universities there now. And we're driving out there, and uh, Jim says, Rick, how old are you now? And I said, I'm I'm 16, Mr. Hogue. That's why I'm driving. I just got my driver's license. He said, look, we got this book in. It's called How to Get a Teenage Boy and What to Do with Him When You Get Him. I said, "Wow, that's an interesting idea." He said, "How would you like to? How would you like to review this book?" My father was a book editor, and I go, "I don't know. If my dad says it's okay, Mister Hogue. I'd love to do that." And my father says, "Yeah, I think that that'd be all right." So I can't remember. I think her name was Ellen Peck, and this is this is going back decades. And I wrote the most savage review that I have ever written in the tens of thousands of stories. That I've read because the book was terrible. Uh, you know, it, it, you know. Try leaving your handkerchief on the desk in your class, and I'm like, this is not how to get a teenage boy. And I just destroyed it. And and when it was printed in the Sun Times, they had a, like some class picture of mine, uh, almost a full page. Paul, you'd love that, and saying a teenage boy reviews this book. That was my first. Real bio. I know you sure. I only have one more question, but Paul comes. His father, photographer. Your father. Oh yeah. Uh, in the in newspaper business, kind of what my book is about. Was this a destiny for you to be in the newspaper business? I'm not sure. I, I did want. I flirt with creative writing when I was living in Spain as a you know a, a poor Hemingway uh, impersonator, not going to bullfights because I thought found they were grotesque, but doing a considerable amount of drinking. <laughs> Uh, I, I did. I, you know, my father would take me to the newspaper office as a real young boy, and I, I got kind of imbued with the feeling of right. an old-fashioned newsroom. With yeah. I think the sound of typewriters is really a narcotic for me. It's like yeah. you know, hearing the Black Crows or something. And people were still smoking. Probably. Oh, they smoked yeah. drinking. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and it was a very colorful group of. Uh, of people, so if it was some kind of genetic thing, it's sort of like the late Paul. You know, here, here's a typewriter. Play with the typewriter. Here's a camera. Take a picture of Luell Cinder. Uh, I think it was a destiny of sorts, of sorts. And it's been, you know, we've been talking enough about the joys of uh, 
what we used to do and what we still do. I mean, Paul's going to a concert tonight. He doesn't, and, and he's going to shoot it, and you're going to write another book. Or, I'm going to go have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's still something. We, that's still something we kind of uh, we kind of do. But it, it you know, I got to tell you, Dave and Paul, it was a glorious time to be a newspaper. I mean, there were four vibrant, yeah. vibrant newspapers here. There were people covering for the newspapers every conceivable concert that went on and discovering people. Paul, you, you have to feel a sense of real discovery and that you, you met some of these bands and shot some of these bands when they were nobodies, so to speak. Well, the, to me, the coolest thing was I would get up every morning and buy the Sun-Times because my father's best friend, you guys probably know him as a guy named Nick Schumann. Oh, sure. And uh, my father grew up with him, and he was the editorial director of the Sun-Times. Yeah. Former foreign correspondent. Yeah, yeah. and he, he's the one that got me into reading the paper. And when I saw, the first time I saw one of my pictures in the Sun-Times, it was like, holy crap, this is great. Do you remember what it was? No. Oh. No, but I, uh, I used to, McLeese used to come over to my house every Monday morning. And he'd say, well, I'm writing about so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And I'd say, just go upstairs and go to the files and pull out whatever pictures you want and bring them with you to the paper. Oh. And they would appear in the paper that week. And there, there wasn't a whole lot of money in it, but a lot more than there is now. Well, I mean, and, Dave, will, Dave will attest to it, too, and you, too. There, there was some uh, beyond joy in seeing your byline. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's not... Not quite a narcotic, but almost. I still say I remember the first. I was a, I was a suburban sometimes before I got hired at yeah. the Chicago Center. I went downtown to write. You know, I was like I was like Doctor Night Live, or I, you know, I kind of followed in your footsteps. But I remember writing that. I remember being at four hundred one, writing that first thing. And for me, I told you I started at, uh, at the Naperville Central High School newspaper. Sure. It was like being a ball player and playing at Wrigley Field. Yeah. It, it gave me goosebumps. Getting called, and then up. Roger would come over and talk. You know, Roger would wander around, talk to everybody on deadline. It was just. It was it was really it was a quintessential moment for me. Paul, did you ever flirt with the idea of joining the staff of a newspaper, or were um, you just having too much fun and freedom? I was having too much fun freelancing yeah. and freedom. And I liked the idea that I could go to a concert and sell pictures to ten different magazines and different pictures to ten different magazines. When there were ten magazines, when there were ten okay. magazines, now there are no magazines. Is that true? Pretty much zero. Are you at all interested, either of you? in reading the new autobiography of Jan Winner. Not really. <laughs> yeah, neither am I. Neither am I. I, I think the guy got incredibly there's, there's a He certain... did it because he didn't like the other one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the official sanctioned yeah. one. Right. That he, yeah. So he made up his own story. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure it's uh, the most self-aggrandizing. I, I think that there's, there's a lack of journalism, journalistic integrity in... The world today that there was some kind of integrity back in the day mm -hmm. and i want to end with one really really great story that i probably shouldn't tell but i got to tell it well then you uh, have to tell it there was a day when uh mr hoekstra was getting married uh -huh. and he invited don mcleese to the wedding and he invited me to the wedding and i had to leave the wedding early because i had to go out to poplar creek music theater and photograph elton john 
who was the most outrageous I've ever seen him with yellow, red, and green hair and the, the whole clown suit he was wearing. And the sometimes sent a woman who was not really a music critic uh, to review the show. And the next day, I went to pick up my film at the lab, and I went to the 7-Eleven and bought the paper. And I opened up this article, and she wrote about this guy who doesn't do anything outrageous anymore and wore a three-piece suit on stage. And uh, it was a huge scandal. Oh, yeah. But that was the first time I ever saw journalistic integrity go right out the window. Remember it well. (laughs) Remember it well. You guys... uh Dave's got a website, Dave Hoekstra. He's got a blog, and he does wonderful writing on it. Paul, do you have a website? Natkin.net. Natkin.net. And that's DaveHoekstra.com. Thank you, guys. It's an hour and a half well spent. Thank you. And, uh, we should have been drinking during it, but we weren't. <laughs> and, uh, so what are we going to do? Next time. What are we going to do? We're going to talk about Jim Post after the news. <laughs>